breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Excessive uterine bleeding has plagued women since the beginning of time. The word menharaja is derived from the Greek men, month, and rege, to burst forth from heavy menstrual flow in ancient times would have undergone a treatment regimen which consisted of applying ligatures to the armpits and groins in an attempt to reduce blood flow to the uterus. The 1883 version of endometrial ablation consisted of irrigating the uterine cavity with carbolic acid, silver nitrate, or nitric acid. By the early 1940s, the use of x-rays and radium to decrease excessive menstrual bleeding was popular, and while those treatments were affected, They've resulted in a much higher rate of uterine and cervical cancer than ordinarily seen. Today, abnormal bleeding accounts for 30% of hysterectomies in the United States. Modern methods of endometrial ablation are a viable option for many of these women. But of course, the challenge is determining who is a good candidate and who is not. Joining me to discuss new ACOG recommendations for endometrial ablation is Dr. Ted Anderson, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where he is the director of the fellowship program in minimally invasive surgery. Welcome, Dr. Anderson. Thank you very much for having me. So, Dr. Anderson, can you start by telling us about the revised ACOG guidelines regarding endometrial ablation? Well, there are a few significant things that have changed in the new guidelines, and one of those is putting endometrial ablation a little bit more in perspective with what we have seen since the development of the global technologies in the 1990s. The primary change that we see in these guidelines would be the way we define menorrhagia 
and the way we assess patients in their likelihood of responding well to endometrial ablation. So how do you define menorrhagia? Well, there are a few ways that you can define it. One would be bleeding that lasts for greater than seven days mm -hmm. or that exceeds about 80 cc's of blood loss. But measuring blood loss is actually quite difficult. Uh, we know that there's a great variability in perception in the way people perceive their amount of bleeding. Another way that you could do it is simply by asking more functional questions, such as does the amount of bleeding that you have during your period interfere with what you need to do and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really addressed by the new ACOG guidelines. Well, what specifically do the ACOG guidelines say about the amount of bleeding? One important new topic that they address is that menorrhagia really can be defined as patient-perceived heavy menstrual bleeding. This is, I think, a, a departure from the uh, previous guidelines of, of trying to make measurements, trying to make uh, more... Uh, metric-based evaluation of patients. And far more appropriate, because we all know that it's a woman's perception of heavy bleeding that determines if she wants to do something about it, unless, of course, it's so extreme that it's resulting in anemia or other more severe conditions. That's absolutely correct. You know, there was actually a study that was done uh, quite some time ago, but still holds true today, and that was looking at women's bleeding and asking them uh, how they perceive that bleeding to be. And what we found is that about a third of women who had really minimal abnormal bleeding considered themselves to be hemorrhaging. But on the other hand, fully a half of women who truly did have menorrhagia by objective criteria felt that to be normal. That's right. It's amazing what people will put up with, I think, is what we learned from that. You're absolutely correct. There's a wide variety of what people consider to be acceptable. Now, wasn't there also a comment in the ACOG guidelines about medical management having to precede ablation? Well, that's true. The traditional teaching has been that we try medical management first. Mm -hmm. However, we know that there are increasing number of women who either should not be taking medical management because of comorbidities, smoking, hypertension, these sorts of things. Correct. And there may be people who don't respond well to medical management. Mm -hmm. So the new guidelines acknowledge that this may not really need to be a prerequisite to try endometrial ablation. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the danger to me in these recommendations, which I agree wholeheartedly that the time has come to stop with the silly, you know, how are we going to measure menstrual flow and all that and talk about really the woman's perception. But the danger, of course, is that many ablations are done inappropriately, if you will. And if you have a situation where women can simply ask for an ablation, and then their doctor performs the ablation because they've requested it, the concern, of course, is that some might be inappropriately done in women who are not good candidates. Are you concerned about that? Well, there is a little bit of concern about that, and I think that extends to all medical therapies. You know, it's what I call vending machine medicine, where women come in wanting a specific procedure or wanting a specific therapy without any evaluation to see whether that therapy might be appropriate or might be effective in that patient. No, I agree. And I think with the danger in ablation is that there's a little bit more of an issue that that might occur because it is technically easy to perform. It is also quite lucrative. And while those of us in the kind of practice that we don't do something inappropriate, unfortunately, there is a concern that it might be done and will be a failed procedure as a result of that. Let's talk a little bit about evaluation prior, because obviously what we want to do is to evaluate who is the correct patient. Do you think that every single patient should have an endometrial biopsy prior to an endometrial ablation? Well, it's been my practice to do that. However, I don't think that the evidence necessarily dictates that that's required. If you look at the statistics of who is more likely to have 
really significant abnormal pathology, that varies by age. Mm -hmm. And really, I think if you look at the data after age about 35, the risk of having a significant abnormal pathology goes up. Something such as hyperplasia or other precancerous changes in the endometrium. And really, I think after age 35, the data would suggest you should have an endometrial biopsy. That's a little bit variable earlier than that, and I think left to the physician's discretion. So if biopsy isn't necessary in every patient who's going to undergo an ablation, how about ultrasound? Well, I think that's an absolute criterion. I ultrasound every single patient. And two things I look at that are very important. We have traditionally just looked at the lining of the uterus or the endometrium to see if there are any irregularities such as polyps or fibroids or things like that. But now we're understanding a much greater role that the myometrium or the muscular covering of the uterus plays because this acts as partially a buffer for the energy source that we're using for the endometrial ablation, protecting that from the other organs that surround the uterus. And you do a saline infused sonogram for most of your patients? I do if I see something irregular in the endometrial cavity that leads me to believe that there may be a polyp or a fibroid or some other irregularity of the cavity. And if a patient has a small submucous fibroid, do you think it's beneficial to combine an ablation with a hysteroscopic resection of the fibroid or you don't think it's necessary if the fibroid is small? That's a great question and you're going to get a lot of variability in the answer to that question. I think the key is how much of that fibroid is protruding into the cavity. If it is minimally protruding into the cavity and would not impede your ability to perform the ablation as it's designed to be performed, there's no need to resect that. But if it's a large fibroid or if it is really substantially protruding into the cavity, that actually might impede your ability to perform the ablation correctly. So then resection of that fibroid would be indicated. So do you think it makes sense with every patient that has an ablation who has a fibroid to do a hysteroscopy at the time um, with the ability to resect that fibroid if it looks like it's going to interfere? Well, I think that's probably true, but I think if you do an ultrasound ahead of time, you're going to know that information before you go into the operating room. I don't like to have surprises when I go into the operating room. Right. So I like to know that ahead of time and be prepared to do resection if I think that's going to be indicated. Now, I want to move on a little bit to talk about the issue with comparing a levonorgestrel intrauterine device with ablation because we know that the slow-release levonorgestrel intrauterine device decreases menstrual bleeding in about 90% of women, producing an amenorrhea over time in most. And in women with normal uterine cavities, the studies do show that patient satisfaction and reduction in menorrhagia after ablation is very similar to that after insertion of the levonorgestrel-releasing IUD. And we also know that a progesterone IUD is dramatically less expensive than an ablation, takes a lot less time, requires no anesthesia, and can be inserted during an office visit in just a few minutes uh, using no special equipment. And it's also reversible in case the woman changes her mind. So given all of that, how do you justify ablation over the use of a progesterone IUD? Well, the first thing that I ask women is what their long-term objective is. And if, if fertility is not a concern, then certainly we have all of these options available to them. If they want to preserve their fertility, certainly endometrial ablation would not be an option at that point. Some women uh, really like the higher percentage of amenorrhea that is possibly offered by endometrial ablation. If you look at the amenorrhea rate with the levonorgestrel-containing IUD, in fact, what we see is about 20% of women will probably become amenorrheic over the course of a year. Now, that may seem like a pretty good uh, reduction in bleeding for a lot of people, but many people really want a higher percentage. They're really trying to avoid a hysterectomy, and the endometrial ablation offers a little bit better chance of reducing bleeding, a little bit better chance of amenorrhea. And 
people will often opt for that. Yeah, and I think my concern is that a lot of women aren't offered the IUD as an option, and it is a significantly less expensive option and one that can be done in the office. You're absolutely correct. And right now, treatment of abnormal bleeding using the leave an adjustable containing IUD is really FDA off-label. But that's never stopped us from... <laughs> You're exactly right. We, we use a lot of things that are off-label. In fact, about, what, 30% of oral contraceptive, hormonal contraceptive is prescribed for off-label use. You're correct. And it's actually a very good therapy, and you're right. I think it's not offered enough. Mm-hmm. Well, endometrial ablation is clearly an option that many of our patients would benefit from, and I wish to thank our guest, Dr. Ted Anderson, for helping us understand who is a good candidate for endometrial ablation and who is not. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.